0: To the book of Hebrews once more looks like we've got maybe just a couple weeks this week and, and next week left in in this book and uh, we want to come back again this morning to Hebrews chapter 13 uh, and really going to read uh, verses 9 through 16 um, we've, we've kind of been all around some of these verses and even touched on them a little bit but I just want to give a full treatment to To these particular verses so hebrews 13 verse number 9 do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat But we seek the city that is to come through him. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Some people have made the case and we've mentioned this before that the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon or several sermons that were maybe compiled into uh, a written form and uh, we don't know that for sure it, it sure seems like that at certain times and um, one of the things that that kind of indicates perhaps that is is just some of the rhetorical devices that that are used throughout uh, the book of, of Hebrews a, a rhetorical device in case you don't know is a, a method of maybe making sermons or speeches memorable. They're they're sort of tricks that we use and preachers use them still today. Uh, Things like alliteration. You you all know that when you each point that you make starts with the same letter. Uh, You've heard that you could preach about Christ and you could mention the cradle, the cross and the crown. It's just a good way uh, of kind of helping people remember the structure and, and the main point of what you're getting across. And, and there are certain things like that in the book of Hebrews that indicate that perhaps this really truly was a, a sermon. One common rhetorical device that speakers often use, preachers or even political speakers and so forth, is just grabbing hold of sort of a theme uh, that, that weaves through all of the points that you're making. You might be making different points about different topics and different subjects, but there's a thematic approach that, that binds them all together politicians do this i mean they get up and they speak about health care and they speak about economics and they speak about things around the world but oftentimes they have some kind of theme that brings all of those things together you could think of uh, our previous president president obama so often talked about hope and many of his speeches especially when he was campaigning had that thematic uh approach to it of of hope and our, our most recent president donald trump obviously had the whole slogan make america great and so These politicians, they they tend to do that. And I think that's one of the things that the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews does uh, quite often. Uh, In fact, we saw this not too long ago, maybe a few months ago. uh, I believe it's in chapter 10 uh, where he takes the idea or the concept, the theme of a will uh, or a testament uh, and he makes just several points that are somewhat disconnected. I mean, they're not tightly logical points, uh, but, but they all revolve around this idea or this concept of, of a will or, or testament. Well, I say all this because that's something of what we have here this morning in, in these verses. Uh, there's a thematic approach, uh, and, and he sort of draws different points regarding Christ and then us as believers in, in our lives Uh, And he does so around the theme of a sacrifice, a sacrifice. That's been a common theme throughout the book of Hebrews. And he and he really drives into it here in in these verses. And and I would say there's kind of two key movements in this. Uh, There is, first of all, the sacrifice of Jesus that he would have us consider. Uh, And then there are some sacrifices that he calls us as believers or followers of Jesus Christ So that's going to be kind of the two uh, major points this morning. First of all, the sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice, and then our sacrifice. So let's begin this morning by just considering and contemplating the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see, first of all, and we're going to focus on verses 11 and 12. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The first thing that we see about Jesus sacrifice this morning is the benefit of Christ's sacrifice. And the benefit of Christ's sacrifice is that he actually or truly sanctifies us. He truly sanctifies us. Now we're going to unpack what that means. That's kind of a theological word. Maybe some of you understand it. Maybe some of you don't. Uh, but but we're here and we're going to explain what that means. What does it mean that Christ's sacrifice truly sanctifies us? Well, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he does so often and, and surely by now we're, we're aware of the fact that he's drawing from the Old Testament and from the religious cult of the Old Testament, the religious practices, the rituals of the Old Testament, and he's he's demonstrating over and over again how the work of Christ was was foreshadowed in those, and how Christ is the fulfillment of those Old Testament rituals, and and that's what he's doing here. It's all based upon a, a principle or understanding that that God's revelation, that is His revealing of Himself and His revealing of His of His work of salvation. Listen to this: is a progressive work. And therefore, the Old Testament was uh, the old covenant was preparatory. So the the work that God does of revealing himself to us and and explaining to us his plan of salvation, how he's going to redeem us is a progressive work. The, the Bible is a, a progressive book. Uh, and and therefore, when we look to the Old Testament, we need to understand that it is that it is preparatory for what is to come in the new covenant, the, the work of Christ. So when I say progressive, I mean that God has revealed truth about himself in a progressive way, in an unfolding way, just as a teacher, uh, you know, on the first day of kindergarten, if you were to walk into a, a kindergarten class and you hear a teacher trying to explain algebraic equations to these students, you would think this person has lost their mind, right? This is not a very good teacher. They'd. They don't understand that that for the first thing that you need to do is probably explain the whole concept of numbers. You need to get them to identify, be able to identify what their numbers, and let's just let's begin by learning to count and so forth. and And progressively over their years of education, eventually they're going to get to this uh, to this idea or this concept of algebraic equations, and and they'll be ready. But they're not going to be ready today. And and so it is with. Uh, the, the work of, of God revealing himself and revealing his son and revealing his work of salvation. It was a progressive unfolding. And so when we look back, therefore, to the Old Testament, we need to understand that it is preparatory. It, it, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law, and the rituals given in the Old Covenant was not the end. It was merely the beginning. In some ways, it was very basic. It was very tangible and physical things like sacrifices, things that could be seen and touched and and, and observed in that way. But all of that was to the end of, of explaining and preparing us to receive the spiritual truth about God's son, who is our sacrifice. And this is this is true, particularly of that sacrifice. There were all kinds of rituals in the Old Testament. There were washings there. There were different kinds of things that they did in terms of worship. There were there was the tabernacle and so forth. All of that pointed to Christ, but particularly in in a in a very unique way, the the sacrificial system was something that pointed to the work of Jesus Christ. So the old covenant, the the Old Testament sacrifices are, are maybe something like when I was a kid going back to the illustration of of being in kindergarten or learning to count and so forth, learning addition. Uh, Some of us kids that didn't catch on as quick, uh, they they would give maybe straws or sticks. And they'd say, look here, we've gone over this a dozen times and you're not just getting it. So so let me give you five sticks here and you can count them out. How many are there? One, two, three, four, five. And now I'm going to take two of those away. How many sticks do I have left? One two, three, three, right? Yeah, it's a visible, tangible way of teaching. And that's what the old covenant sacrifices were. They were visible, tangible ways of preparing us to understand who Jesus was, why it was necessary for him to come and what he was going to do when he came. So much of the book of Hebrews then is just drawing out those lessons. That were taught in the old covenant and saying look jesus is the fulfillment of that look this this was teaching a lesson and jesus is the greater fulfillment what what this pictured what this was symbolic of jesus actually accomplished now let's apply that and and there are a couple lessons that that he points to in a particular way regarding these sacrifices. The, the first is you notice that he says this sacrifice in verse 11 and 12 was taken outside of the camp. The old covenant sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices were, were taken outside of the camp and burned up. And so he says, so Jesus was taken outside the gate of the city and suffered outside the gate. What's the deal with that? Well, that is a reference in particular, I think, uh, to the Day of Atonement sacrifice, which you could find and read about in Leviticus 16. We won't read that now. Uh, but, but of course, the, the main point of all the sacrifices was, was just to demonstrate our need of being cleansed of our sin in order to be in fellowship with God. If we're going to have a relationship with a holy and righteous God, something has to be done to, to deal with our sins and to sort of cleanse us from our unrighteousness, to make us fit, to make us holy and acceptable so that we can come into God's presence, or or in this case, so that God could come into the presence of the people and dwell in the temple or in the tabernacle. You see, God's holiness requires that we be made holy or sanctified. That's that word I said earlier. That's kind of a a churchy theological word that you may not understand but, but this idea of sanctification is just to be cleansed and to be purified so that you are made holy and acceptable to God. If I could give an illustration that might help illustrate the, the concept of, of being cleansed, uh, we're right in the midst of something that I think is a perfect example. You see, God's view of our sinfulness is, is something like the way we may view COVID-19 right now. People are taking all these measures, aren't they, to insulate themselves and to protect themselves from the spread of a virus. Well, God presents sin in a similar way. It's dangerous. It's contaminating. And to be near to sin in this way is to become unclean. It's to be exposed. There's a lot of people that have been exposed lately to this virus, and that's the way that That sin is the idea is then that we as sinners have all been infected by sin. God is holy and God is pure. And so in order for God to come near to us and to have fellowship with us, then we've got to first be cleansed and and made clean so that he can dwell with us and so that we can have fellowship with him. The sacrifice of the animal then was an act of symbolically, it symbolically represented God removing our sin from us or cleansing us and purifying us so that we could have that fellowship with God. The animal, the bull or the goat, in this case on the Day of Atonement, symbolically took the the sin of the people and, and was then put to death. One of the things that the priest would do when he would take this goat, first he offered a bull on the Day of Atonement for his own sin, and then he would take a goat for the sin of the people. And he would take this goat and he would place his hands on the head of the goat and he would pray to God and he would confess the sins of the people in an act of symbolically saying, now this animal is the one who's bearing the sin of the people and then that animal would be sacrificed. The last step of this process was that after this animal's sacrifice, the the carcass, the dead body of that animal then was finally taken outside of the camp. It was taken outside of the city and it was burned up. And the spiritual truth being represented in this final phase of the process was that the sin of the people had now been placed on this animal. This animal was taken out of the presence of the people. Their sin was lifted and carried away from them. So that they could be considered pure or, or clean. Once the uh, sacrifice was completed, uh, the the sins of the people were atoned for, and they could be considered pure, and therefore God could then dwell with them. they could have fellowship with God. They were enabled then to to enter into his presence and and to worship him and and so forth their sin had been lifted off of them and placed on the animal and the goat was sacrificed symbolically, taking God's judgment and then removed from the presence of the people. And as a result, they were no longer contaminated by their sinfulness. The Bible has a word, as I mentioned, for this process, for all of that happening. It is the word to be sanctified as this occurred the people were then sanctified. They were made holy. They were made pure. They were made acceptable to God. So the writer of Hebrews here is drawing this comparison from this old covenant sacrifice, which was meant to be a symbolic illustration of the true reality of Christ. And and that's really what we need to see next here. There's there's a bit of a contrast because those old covenant sacrifices never truly made those people holy and acceptable to God. It it was God's gracious act of, of restraining his anger, restraining his judgment upon them and pointing them forward to this savior who would come and actually accomplish accomplish what they were doing year in and year out symbolically. What these sacrifices symbolized, Jesus' sacrifice actually accomplished. He was the Lamb of God and our sins. We just sang about that in the city of Jerusalem. See Him there, the, the Lamb of God, praying to God, our sins placed upon Him. He's the Lamb of God. Our sins and our uncleanness were taken from us and laid on Him. He was carried outside of the city of Jerusalem to the hill of, uh, of Calvary, and He was put to death as God's judgment on our sin. Our sin has been then lifted off of us and and placed on Him. Or to use the other illustration, our sins have been now cleansed. We've been sanctified. We've been made pure so that we can enter into God's fellowship. We can enter into God's presence that God's Holy Spirit can dwell within us. And one day we can enter into His very presence in heaven because our sins have been washed away from us. This is exactly what the writer of Isaiah is talking about, Isaiah 53. And just listen to the, the words that he uses here and, and how it connects to the old covenant sacrifices and our understanding what Christ has done. Isaiah 53 verse four, surely he has born, he has born, he has taken our grief and put, or our sins and put them on himself. He has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, like a sacrifice, like a lamb that is put to death. He's smitten by God and afflicted. All we, like sheep, have, have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's that's what Christ has done. He has taken all of your wonderings, all of the times that you've rebelled against God, all of the times that you've lacked faith, all the times that you've looked at the law of God and said, you know what, I know God tells me not to do that, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. He has taken all of those things and he laid them on his son who bore them for us. What we need to understand then is that these Old Testament sacrifices were merely a shadow Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4, we won't read that, but it speaks of the Old Testament sacrifices as a shadow of good things to come. And that in those sacrifices that there was a reminder of sins every year. But the writer concludes that by saying it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That Old Testament sacrificial system did nothing except point them to have faith in this coming Messiah who would be the the true sacrifice of God. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But, But what those things symbolize Jesus has truly and actually accomplished. You see the work of Jesus was not just a symbolic work. It wasn't just a symbolic expression of God's love for you. Something was actually being accomplished and what was actually being accomplished is that your sins were being washed away. You were being sanctified. You were being made acceptable to God. In Hebrews 9:26 It says that Jesus appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin. He took our sin. He bore our sin and he went outside the camp and he died and he bore the wrath of God, carrying our sins away from us. He put away our sins In Hebrews 10 verses 12 through 14. It says, but when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God for by a single offering. He has perfected. There's another different word, but the same idea. You've been made acceptable. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You have forever. It's not a year to year thing. It's not a, I prayed today and now I'm acceptable to God, but tomorrow I'm going to have to pray again and I'm going to have to confess again and I'm going to have to get right again so that I can be acceptable to God. No, you've been perfected for all time. When you believe in Christ, the work of Christ is truly sufficient to, to once for all, Deliver you from your sins, past, present, and future, and to make you forever acceptable to God. Believer, do you understand that right now, if you have faith in Christ, there's no question or there's no doubt about, am I accepted by God? Is God pleased with me? Am I okay to pray to God? Am I okay to go to church and enter into worship and fellowship with God? Absolutely, always, it doesn't matter that you sin this morning, you need to get that right, you need to pray and confess that to God, but but yet, even in your sinfulness, you stand accepted once for all because of the sacrifice of Christ. So this morning, are you still bearing your sin? Are you contaminated by your sin? Have you been quarantined from the presence of God, so to speak, because you're Unclean. Maybe you're here and you think, well, I'm not really that bad. My sin isn't that bad that God would not want me in his presence, like that, that God would distance himself and say that you're unclean because of your sin. And I, I can't have fellowship with him. Maybe my sin isn't that bad. But let me just ask you this morning. If someone was to come in here this morning, you know, they've they've just tested positive for COVID-19. They've got a one hundred and three degree fever and they're hacking up all over the place. And they say, come here, let me give you a hug and, and let me kiss you on the cheek. I mean, there's varying degrees of, of concern about COVID-19, I know, among people, but I think all of us, it would be safe to say, would say, you just stay over there. In fact, you need to go back home and let's, let's get some Lysol out here. Well, well, listen, that is just, but a mere small glimpse of the disdain that God has for our sin. And so, Who are we to think my sin's not that bad. God would welcome me. God would accept me just the way that I am. No, no, unless your sin has been dealt with, unless you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ and by his sacrifice, you are on the outside. You are unacceptable. You are not able to come into God's presence. What good news it is then this morning that Jesus was taken outside of the camp. He was quarantined. He was got, let's let's take him out here away. He was taken outside the camp so that we can be sanctified and welcomed into the presence of God. What what a trade. Jesus said, "I'll, I'll suffer the rejection of God for you so that you can be accepted and welcomed into the presence of God. That's the gospel. The second thing that we see about this sacrifice of Jesus is that faith, lays hold of the saving benefits of Christ. I'm going to back up and now and actually look at verse number 10. He says in verse number 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have an altar uh, from those who serve the tent from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So let me explain a little bit of the context again with this. Uh, They were prone these were these were Jewish believers and they were they were prone to to look to gain some spiritual benefit uh, by eating the meats of the sacrifice the animals that were sacrificed under the old covenant sacrificial system that was still going on in, in the day here when Hebrews was written they were still offering sacrifices. So there were Jews who had believed in Christ and they had left all of that behind, but it's still going on over here. The temple is still in existence. The sacrificial system is, is still happening. And so they, they were prone to sort of be drawn back into that thinking we're kind of missing out of this. maybe we're not being nourished the way that we need to, because we're not eating in that sacrifice. We're not partaking of that. Jewish Christians, because they no longer observe the old covenant system, lost their right to participate in those things. And really the whole book of Hebrews then is is urging, urging them not to be allured back to those things. I mean, the whole book, we've seen this again. Hopefully you're getting this by now, but but the whole book is saying, hey, don't go back to that. That was the shadow. That's the substance has come. The reality has come. You're experiencing the reality. So why would you go back here and participate in these rituals that were ultimately pointing you to Christ? You have the reality. And instead, he points them to Christ. Don't don't think about what you're missing out on. Understand that you have an altar from which those who serve the tent, meaning the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, they have no right to eat. You, you do have a sacrifice. Obviously, he's talking about Christ. Christ is that sacrifice. But what is he talking about here when, when he's saying that you have a right to eat of this altar or of, of this sacrifice and that they have no right to eat of it? Well, to eat in the Bible of Christ And we could go to the gospel of john to see this very clearly we'll do that here in just a second it is just simply a metaphor for having faith in christ let me read john 6 35 it says this jesus said to them i am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and listen to these words whoever believes in me shall never thirst our response to Christ is always faith. It's always belief. That's what he calls us to. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing for you. These are the saving benefits that are offered to you. And your response to receive that is faith to to believe. And so he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who can provide nutrition, this spiritual uh, kind of metaphorical way. But he says, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. And then verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. You see, he's been talking about believing. He's been saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. But now he kind of changes and he uses this metaphorical way of of speaking. He said, I'm I'm the bread like the manna in the Old Testament. I'm that bread and whoever eats of me. Well, what does that mean? Clearly in the context to eat of Christ is is to believe in him. Whoever eats of me may may uh, whoever believes may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the uh, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's talking about his sacrifice again on the cross. So it's clear then that that this giving of his flesh is his physical death and the eating of his flesh is a metaphor for believing. And this is the way I think that the writer of Hebrews is using it. We eat or partake of Christ's sacrifice. Not literally. They did that in the Old Covenant. They offered sacrifices and they would eat of the sacrifices, right? But he's saying now there's a spiritual reality in the New Covenant. There's this sacrifice of christ and we eat of that sacrifice we have that altar from which we eat and those who are still under the old covenant and still observing those things they have no right to eat of this sacrifice that we're eating of but clearly he's not talking about literally eating of the the flesh and drinking the blood of christ he's talking about by believing in christ and this way of thinking gets carried over right into the lord's supper we have an ordinance that that pictures and symbolizes this whole reality. We we don't believe when we eat this wafer, as Jared called it the other day. What was it? A styrofoam wafer? We've we've been doing that individual packet, and it ain't so good. It does kind of taste like styrofoam. I'll be glad when we get back to the normal bread. Uh, that's a, a diversion. That's a rabbit trail there. So let me come back to that. But but that's the the picture of what what we're doing. We don't believe we're literally eating the body and and drinking the blood of Christ. We're symbolically eating and saying, listen, I'm I'm partaking of Christ. I'm believing, I'm trusting in Christ and I'm taking to myself the benefits of Christ's sacrificial work. That's the whole idea of eating. I'm, I'm taking it to myself. And the way that we truly take the benefits of Christ's sacrifice to ourselves is by believing in Him. But notice what he says here that they have no right to eat. Why why does he say that? Why does he say that they have no right to eat? He's talking about those who are still observing the old covenant. Well, this doesn't mean, I don't think, that Christ has refused them. I think it means that they have refused to believe in Christ. You see, they're still clinging to these old rituals. They're they're still clinging to these, these old practices instead of, Believing in Christ, if they would believe in Christ, if they would turn to him, they would be saved and they would have the right to then participate or partake in the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. The reason they could not partake of Christ is because they were continuing to look to a now defunct system of religious observance for salvation. And and notice here what he says. And when you see this. A commentator actually pointed this out. And once I saw it, I was like, wow, that's such a stark contrast. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. They serve the tent. Talk about a lifeless, dead kind of system. He can talk about it in terms of serving a tent, serving a a tabernacle. We serve the risen Savior, right? We are participating in in the reality of of what all of that pointed forward to. But it's because they're continuing to look to this lifeless, dead system that they have no right to partake of Christ. What a a sad thing to look at the symbol and miss the reality. And listen, we can do that even though we're in the new covenant now. uh, we, We can do the same thing. If you're here this morning and, and you're looking to your participation in, in these symbolic realities, maybe the fact that you've been baptized, Or maybe the fact that you do partake of the Lord's table or maybe the fact that you uh, at least outwardly belong to the new covenant people that you belong to to a a church that you have church membership. You may be looking at all of those things as sort of the foundation for your relationship to God. But what this would point us point to us is, is just recognizing that when you do that, when you serve those things, those symbolic institutions, you're missing out on Christ. You need to have your faith in Christ. You need to partake of Christ and look to him for your salvation. If you're looking this morning to church membership or baptism or attending church or reading your Bible or being a good husband or wife or whatever it is, then you have lost the right to partake of Christ. You see, your salvation is either what you do and the rituals that you partake in or it's in Christ. And if you're resting in those things, you're not truly saved. Those, those things will not atone for your sins. Those things will never wash away your sins. There are no saving benefits to being baptized. There are no saving benefits to coming to church or partaking of the Lord's table. The saving benefits that God offers to us must be found in Christ alone. And so we look to him for salvation. It's so very easy to look to things, to rituals and practices that are associated with God, that are associated with the Bible, that are associated uh, uh, with the church and not to look to Christ. And when we do that, we cut ourselves off from Christ. Well, this morning, I kind of plan to, to focus our attention on this first Uh, because we need to have our our minds and hearts focused on the sacrifice of Christ. But as we bring this to an end, uh, I I want us to note here, try to move through this quickly, but then our sacrifices, our sacrifice. I told you there were two kind of big picture items here, the sacrifice of Jesus and then the sacrifices that we are called to. You see, Jesus' sacrifice bids us to sacrifice. And we notice here what are the sacrifices that we are called to make? Well, first of all, in verse number 13, he says that we are to go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. He was taken outside the camp for us. He suffered on our behalf. And so as followers of Christ now, we need to be willing to go outside the camp. And we're going to talk about uh, briefly what that means for us. And in verse 15, it says that let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips confessing his name. And then verse 16, we're called to do good and share for such our sacrifices of such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let me just say this really quickly here. Uh, you, you might ask, how can our sacrifice even compare to the sacrifice uh, of Christ? Well, one thing we've got to be super clear about is that our obedience or our sacrifices in the name of Christ, is never the the ground for our relationship with God. That's never what our relationship to God is built off of. Well, have you done enough for me? Have you sacrificed enough? Have you been obedient enough to be accepted by me? No, we need to, as we've already seen, see that the completed work of Christ is our only hope. It's our only foundation for being brought into the presence and fellowship of God. So, so our, our obedience or our sacrifice can never compare in that way. We, we must always keep the separate, separate the distinction between what God requires from us and what he provides graciously for us. Yet because of God's gracious provision in Christ, we are called to respond in obedience. Our, our response is nothing more than an imperfect expression of our gratitude that that's it it's not hey god i'm getting into heaven because i've sacrificed so much for you i gave up so much for you i i i was obedient i did everything that you wanted me to do and and now aren't you proud of me shouldn't you bless me in my life i'm getting into heaven because i've done these things no never that's never going to be the case our our obedience or our sacrifices in, in, in following Christ are always imperfect. We talked about that last week. They're, they're imperfect. They're filled with sin. Even even our best works, they're, they're imperfect expressions of our gratitude. We're just saying, thank you, Lord, that you've accepted me. Thank you that you've welcomed me into your presence. Thank you that you've given your son to bear my sin and to cleanse me from all of my sin. So what are these sacrifices then? Well, the first sacrifice is suffering. He draws this analogy. Since Christ was taken outside the camp, we are to go outside the camp. Of course, this has different connotations when it's applied to Jesus and when it's applied to us. When Jesus was taken outside of the camp, the the idea is that he was taken out of the presence of God and out of the presence of God's people. He was bearing the, the wrath of God. It was symbolic of the fact that he had been rejected by God. When we so to speak, go outside of the camp. It it is simply an expression of the fact that we often are rejected by the world around us. It means that because our faith in Christ, we're often going to be outcast in this world. If you follow Jesus, that's going to be a reality. You're going to be an outcast. That's just the way that it is. So, so here's the contrast. Jesus suffered the rejection of the world and of God. We are called to merely suffer the rejection of the world because we've been accepted by God. Small price to pay to be accepted by the God, but to be rejected by the world. The Bible is abundantly clear here this morning that it is to be expected that if we follow Christ, we're going to be rejected by the world. Believer, just get that just get that into your mind. Just settle that matter right now. You are not going to be accepted by the world in a sort of unconditional full on way. If you follow Christ, you will be rejected by the world and that's what he's calling us to. Christ went outside the camp. He was rejected by God and the world for you. And so, because of that, you must be willing then to be rejected By the world. He gives us here two encouragements as we make this sacrifice. First of all, we need to recognize that as we go outside of the camp, as we suffer, that he will meet us there. Notice what he says in in verse number 13. He doesn't just tell us to go outside the camp, period. He says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. You see, when we suffer for Christ, he meets us there. When we are rejected by the world, that's where we find Jesus. That he was rejected by the world. Don't, don't think that you're going to sit in this comfortable place being accepted and loved by the world and you're going to have Jesus with you. No, no, no. In order to have Jesus with you, you've got to go outside the camp. You've got to be rejected by the world. But what an encouragement it is when you are rejected by the world, Jesus will be there waiting for you, He will meet you in that rejection. Let us go to Him outside the camp. Second, encouragement as we do this is that we may lose this world, but we we gain an eternal city. We may lose this world or the city of man, but we gain an eternal city. He says in verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's our hope. You may lose this world, but but notice what he says here. There's no lasting city. There's no last, this, this world isn't lasting anyway. John tells us that, right? The world is passing away along with its desires and along with us if, if we choose to live for this world. There's no lasting city here. So don't live for this city. Don't live to be accepted by this world. It's passing away. Don't, don't make all of these compromises. And, and all of these accommodations to, to be comfortable here in this world. This world is passing away. You, you need to be willing to disdain this world and to give it up in order to seek the city that is to come. And so we have this encouragement. Listen, you cannot seek acceptance in the city of man and be seeking the city to come at the same time. You seek the city to come by following Christ and following Christ ensures that you will not be accepted by the city of man, the second sacrifice. And I'll just mention these last two very briefly. The second sacrifice is the sacrifice of confessing. And we see this in verse 15 through him. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we live in this world. And, and we face that persecution. We face that rejection. It's so easy and it's so tempting, isn't it? To, to want to just back away from professing Christ. And, and by professing Christ, let me just explain. I, I don't simply mean saying I'm a Christian or I believe in Christ. It's more than that. It's, it's owning who Jesus is and owning and living out what he taught. Right. That's what will get you into trouble. There are all kinds of actors in Hollywood. There are all kinds of political figures that will say, I'm a Christian. I'm a very devout Christian. Right. That won't get you in trouble with the world. What will get you in trouble with the world is believing and living out what Jesus taught. That's what will get you rejection. And that's what he calls us to is the sacrifice of of confessing his name, praising him and, 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 and being willing to own to own him as our own. The third sacrifice this morning that he calls us to in response to Christ's sacrifice is the sacrifice of sharing and, and doing good. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. At first, that might seem to be completely disconnected. Why why are we shifting focus here to, to sharing and, and doing good? But it is connected and it's connected because, first of all, the, the pattern uh, follows our pattern of loving others and sharing and so forth follows the sacrifice of Christ. The the Christian call to love others and, and to sacrificial giving is always patterned after the sacrifice of Christ. When you just look at the New Testament, look at the calls to love, look at the calls to, to give, look at the calls to, to care for one another. What does the writer always do? Paul or whatever epistle you're reading, it, it seems like they always say, look at what Christ did. Now you do that to others. And so as we contemplate the, the work of Christ and the sacrifice that he made, taking our sin and bearing that shame, let us be willing to live sacrificial lives to others as well. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we, we're so thankful, Lord, For Christ, we're so thankful for his sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that we can be loved and accepted and welcomed into your presence based completely on what Christ has done for us. Help us, Lord, not to confuse that. Help us not to look to our own good works uh, in in order to solidify that or or in order to uh, build that up or improve upon it. Let us look to Christ alone. Lord I pray that you would give us hearts to respond in a sacrificial way being willing to go outside the camp and suffer the rejection of this world Be, being willing Lord uh, to profess your name uh, in in this in this broken and, and sinful world and having a heart of of generosity and and caring for others and we pray all of this in Christ's name amen.